Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, It's great to meet some new people, some new faces, so thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us here in this place this morning. Um, I just returned yesterday evening from a retreat in Big Bear with our overseers, you might know as elders, Um, and it was just, I was reminded of what a privilege it is to serve alongside these men. I'm thinking particularly of those who are here with us at La Habra, and I'm going to name them in case you don't know them, but Steve Janney, George Kinsley, Mark Comstock, Joe Orr, who leads worship for us, and Mark Loomis, who are faithful men who serve this church family because they love the Lord and because they love you. And so I am blessed to work alongside with them, and they're such a support to me and to my family. And it's not just those men who are faithful, but it's their wives and it's their families who give up time and give energy because they love the Lord and they want to serve Him. So it's just right to acknowledge them and to thank them. It was a great time to be away with them and to look ahead to what God is doing at Redemption Hill Church. And you are all a part of that as our family. I'm also reminded of what a privilege it is that we're able to open the Word of the Lord every Sunday and that we have an opportunity. I get an opportunity nearly every week to share with you from the Word of God. And that's a privilege and it's not one that I take lightly. So I just, I thank you for being a part of what God is doing in and through this church in this place and at Whittier Hills and uptown. It's exciting to be a part of what God is doing. So thank you for being here Thank you for being a part of it. If you were here with us last week, we talked about the importance of sharing the gospel. We talked about the importance of sharing the hope that we have through the good news of Scripture. And we said that there will always be opposition to this message of good news, this message of hope that we see in Scripture. And because there will always be opposition to that message, then we must always be faithful to proclaim that message of hope that we see here in the Word of God. But there's some difficulty that comes with that. There's some trepidation that comes with that for a couple of reasons. First, we have to know what the message of hope is that we see in Scripture. We have to know it in order to proclaim it. Second, we have to actually believe it. Not just know it up here and be able to repeat it, but we have to believe in our heart that it's actually true. And if we know it and we believe it, then we want to do it well. We don't just want to walk around and hit people over the head with the Word of God and say, believe or repent. That's not effective. That's not an effective way to communicate a message of hope. We want to do it well. We want to communicate to people where they are. We want to understand who they are. I'm going to give away kind of the story this morning. This is a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you the whole main idea of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Here it is. There is one God. He is creator. And he is a personal God. That means that he is, he's active and present in the world right now. And that God who is, who is both personal and creator is also judge. There is one God, he's the creator, he's a personal God, and he is judge. And he offers to us to absolve us from our guilt before him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
That's the whole idea of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. If you walk away with nothing else, I would hope that you walk away with that. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but that's where Paul is going. It's a message of hope. There's no question that it's a message of hope because God offers to absolve us of all guilt before him as creator and judge. He says, I will take it all away through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So there's no question it's a message of hope. We can't mistake it for anything else. But then the question is, why doesn't it feel like a message of hope when we tell other people about it? Why does it feel more offensive than hopeful when we proclaim the hope that we find in Scripture? Why is that? We've already said, based on last week, that we have to proclaim it. We have to if we believe it. But why is it so hard to do? Why do we find that it's so hard to tell about it, tell people about it? Here's why I think that is. Because we say that this message of hope is true, and that reveals some very uncomfortable truths about ourselves. It is a true message, but it kind of points out some things that are true about ourselves that we don't really want to hear. Because the gospel confronts us with the unpleasant truth that we are broken and sinful people. That's just a reality that we have to accept if we're going to accept the gospel. The gospel forces us to recognize our inability to fix our own problem. We have a problem. That problem is our sin and our brokenness, and we can't fix it. And that's kind of uncomfortable and unpleasant to think about as well. And the gospel also says that we need to abandon our plan for the sake of God's plan. So when we say, go out and proclaim a message of hope, here's what we hear. As people who follow Jesus, what we hear is, go out and tell people that they are broken and that they are sinful and that they have no hope of rescuing themselves and that they have to abandon their own plan and turn to God's plan. But do that in a winsome way. That's what we hear. So this morning we're going to look at Paul and we're going to take some pointers from him because Paul boldly proclaims the gospel all the time, but he looks for ways to do that that are the most effective. He's not looking for the most offensive way, but the most effective way to share the truth of the gospel that he knows and believes in his heart. So we're going to take some pointers from Paul this morning in the passage that we're going to look at. And like we do regularly, before we open the Word of God this morning, I'm just going to ask if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're going to open your Word this morning, and I would just ask that you would speak to us through your Word. Lord, we want to represent you well. We know that this is good news that we hold in our hands now. This is the greatest news ever, and yet we know that it is offensive, that people can take it as an offense to them rather than hope. So Lord, help us to represent you well in this world and help us to understand from your word this morning how we can do that effectively. Lord, we want the most people possible to come to saving faith in you. And so as your people, will you help us to do that? We look to you this morning, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to Acts chapter 17? If you don't have a Bible here this morning, if you raise your hand, we will pass one down to you from the baskets here. You are welcome to take that home with you. That is our gift to you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, right where we picked up or left off last week. If you remember in our last episode of the book of Acts, Paul was chased out of Berea by an angry mob. 
for proclaiming the gospel. A mob that had actually followed him from another city. They chased him out of Thessalonica and then they followed him to Berea and they chased him out of there. Paul is proclaiming a message of hope and it is so filled with hope. It has offended people so deeply that they will chase him down from city to city to make sure that he can't proclaim it anymore. So there's no question people are going to take offense at the message. Paul leaves Berea and the believers there take him to the city of Athens and that's where we find him at the beginning of our passage this morning. We're just going to read this first verse and it's going to set some context for where we are this morning. Acts chapter 17 starting in verse 16 it says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul is waiting in the city of Athens and he's waiting for his friends who are still in Berea, still doing the work of the church there, raising up church leaders and he's asked them, Silas and Timothy and others, to come to Athens and to join him. But Paul is waiting because he's been chased out and while he is waiting it says his spirit is provoked because he's in a city full of idols. There is something within Paul that is stirred up, that is angry, that is frustrated at what he sees around him. Now, in order for us to understand this a little bit, you have to understand what the city of Athens is like. You have to understand what it is that Paul is confronted with while he's waiting there for his friends. Athens, for a long period of time, would be considered the, the cultural and intellectual center of the world. If you think of people that you would know, they've, um, like Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, these are all men that came from Athens. <clears throat> At the time it's written, Athens is well past its prime. It's kind of past its heyday, but it still kind of revels in its glorious past. Athens has now been taken over by Rome, but even the Romans like the Greeks so much and respect them so much that it actually governs itself. It's a free city. These are, this is a city of great thinkers, of great educators, of great philosophers, and they really pride themselves on this open-minded dialogue, this free exchange of ideas. That's what the city of Athens is like. It's also a place of worship. So the Greeks would worship the Greek pantheon, so all of the Greek gods and goddesses that you've heard of, Zeus and Apollo and Poseidon and Aries, and they go on and on. There's a lot of them, way too many for me to name. One of them is Athena. Athena is the goddess for whom the city is named. She is like the patron, patron goddess of the city of Athens. In fact, if you were, how many of you have been to Athens before? Oh, actually, more than I thought. Okay, like, like a few. Okay, that's cool. <clears throat> that surprised me. I thought I was going to see one hand, but I saw more than one. Athens has what's known as the Parthenon, which most of you have heard of. The Parthenon is the, the temple to Athena that sits on this massive outcropping known as the Acropolis, so this huge cliff. And on top of this huge cliff is this beautiful palace or, or temple to the goddess Athena. There's a lot of Acropolises in Greece, Acropoli, I don't know. But the one in Athens is the Acropolis. If you were to talk about the Acropolis, everyone would know you're talking about Athens. And on it is the Parthenon. So this is a place where all of these gods and goddesses are worshipped. In fact, it's estimated there's well over 70,000 statues 
to the various gods and goddesses in the city of Athens. So when, when Luke, the author, tells us that the city was full of idols, he's not exaggerating. It is literally filled with idols to the gods and goddesses that the Greeks worship. So Paul finds himself in this city where people value culture and intellect and worship, a city full of philosophers that want to have the free exchange of ideas, people that want to have conversations about truth and morality and religion. This is like putting a kid in a candy store. You put Paul in a city of people that want to talk about morality and truth and religion, and Paul can't help himself because he's looking around and seeing a city full of people who worship gods and goddesses that are not real, and he has the truth of the message of hope And he wants them to know about it. So look what he does. Verse 17. Look at these next few verses. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul really can't restrain himself anymore while he's waiting for his friends. He's like, I'm going to go engage people. And he does what he usually does. He goes to the synagogue first and he talks to those who believe in the God of Israel and he tells them about Jesus. But then look at what else he does. It says he goes to the marketplace every day and talks to everyone. He will talk to anyone who will have a conversation with him about Jesus. And that draws the attention of some of the philosophers of the city. It says the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers want to have a conversation with Paul. Now, I know you all know what the Epicurean philosophers believe and what the Stoic philosophers believe, because we talk about it all the time at home. I know you do too. But just in case you need a refresher, here's, here's what they believe. <clears throat> Two very separate worldviews from each other and obviously very distinct from Paul. The Epicurean philosophers would say this, the chief end of man is pleasure. The chief end of man, the the meaning of life, is to find peace and tranquility and comfort and freedom from anxiety and freedom from pain, which sounds really nice. And they believe in God. They do believe in God, but they just believe that God is indifferent to the plight of man. He doesn't care. He just kind of set it and forget it, God. Now, the Stoic philosophers are very different. They believe that the chief end of man is to be at peace with the natural world, and the natural world is governed by reason and logic, what they would call the logos, kind of this ethereal presence of rational thought that governs all of nature, and so the goal is to be in line with that, to find yourself at peace with that. They put a very high value on things like reason and logic and self-sufficiency, Do things yourself. And it's important for us to understand their worldview because Paul understands their worldview and he's going to speak to it. Paul is not going to preach at them. Paul is going to preach to them where they are. He's going to preach where they are. He understands their worldview and then he's going to use that as an entrance to share the gospel. Some of them want to hear more of what he's talking about and some of them are like, what is this guy blathering on about? We see that here. So look, verse 19, and what happens next. And they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Luke gives us a little bit of a comment here on what Athens is like. Everyone here wants to talk and talk and talk about what you think and what I think. They're always interested in hearing someone's worldview. And so they say, come to the Areopagus and tell us about this. What is the Areopagus? There's so many Greek words in this passage this morning. Here's what it is. It's like, the, it's like a courtroom, essentially, like an outdoor courtroom. This is where kind of the judicial body of the city. And they say, please come and talk to the, the council, like our leaders, those who govern what can be taught in our city, what's allowed to be taught in terms of education and religion. So it's kind of like, please come tell us more. And it's kind of like, please come tell us more so that we can decide whether you can keep saying these things or not. It's kind of a trial, but it's kind of an we're interested too. We want to know more about what you're going to say, and then once we know what you're going to say, we might tell you to stop saying it. That's kind of what this looks like. So <clears throat> I have some photos. Robert, are you able to show those? We usually have the lights off, so I hope you can see these, but let me just show you a couple pictures. This is Athens today. So for the rest of you who haven't been there, um, this is what Athens looked like. There, there are no photos from when Paul was there. He was so busy sharing the gospel, he took no pictures, which I'm sure he regretted later. But this is Athens today. Then can you show the next picture? This is, um, this is the Acropolis and the Parthenon. So this is this huge temple that's built to Athena, for whom the city is named. And Evan was the one that pointed this out to me, Evan Thibodeau, our youth leader, who has been here and, and pointed out to me that this is the Acropolis from the Areopagus. So you are seeing this from where Paul is standing in front of this council to share about Jesus. He is standing literally in the shadow of this massive temple to Athena while they say, tell us about Jesus. Paul, we're really curious to know more about this. Now, the last picture that we have is the opposite view. So if you switched places, this is from the Acropolis looking down at the Areopagus. So this is it. That's the courtroom. Um, it's not quite as fancy. It's like a big rock. And this is where they're going to gather to listen to Paul share about Jesus. This is a really well-known sermon. Most of you have heard this. Many of you have, at least. You can leave that up for a minute. I want you to look at that or I want you to close your eyes for a minute because I want to ask you a question. Before we read this sermon, I just want you to think about this. Think, pretend you're Paul. You're in this city surrounded by tens of thousands of idols in the shadow of the temple of Athena, standing on that rock in front of all of the elders and educators and philosophers and all of the great minds of Athens, and they say, tell us about Jesus. Now, what would you say? How do you proclaim there is a God who is creator, who is personal, and who is judge in that context without offending? How do you do that? Is that even possible? If you're Paul, what are you going to say? Okay, now let's look at what Paul says. Um, I'd love to keep that up, but I'll go blind. So if you don't mind, Robert, thank you. So look at what Paul says. 
verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, we just looked at it, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he starts out by giving them a compliment. He says, hey, I see that you are very religious. I see that you're devoted to religious things. I see that you guys give this a lot of thought. You really care about it. Here's how I know you care about God. Because you have an altar to the unknown God. You have an altar to a God that you don't have a name for and don't know anything about just in case you missed one. So I know that you care about these things, but you may not know his name, but I do. So I'm going to tell you about that God. See how he uses their worldview to gain entry. He says, I I see what you care about. Now let me tell you about the God that you don't know anything about. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, I'll tell you about this unknown God. He's not like the gods that you worship. He doesn't need you to build him a pretty house. I kind of imagine him pointing up at the temple of Athena. He doesn't need you to build him a house like that. He doesn't need you to do something for him. He really doesn't need you to do anything for him because he has done it all. See what he says? He says, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It all comes from him. He is the creator of heaven and earth. How do you take that when you believe in Zeus, God of the heavens, (laughs) Poseidon, God of the sea, Ares, the God of war, and all the others, the God of all the other stuff I can't even remember. There's one God over everything created at all. That's what he says. Then he continues... In verse 28, he continues, and um, I want to point something out. He's going to quote something here. Usually when there's a quote in Scripture, it's quoting Scripture. This is not quoting Scripture. This is quoting the Greek poets. That seems odd. Why is he doing that? He's using their own words, their own worldview, their own understanding of who God is and what he's like to point them to God. So look here. He says he made... Gave breath to everything and he made 26. Sorry, he made one man. Sorry, I skipped ahead. We're not to 28 yet. So hold that thought. I skipped this part, which Paul would not be cool with. So back to 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. So he started saying, I know you guys care about this. There's one God, created everything. Not like the gods that you worship. He doesn't need anything from you. He gives you everything. Then he says, it's a personal God. Not a detached God who doesn't care what's going on in your world. He says he's created one man and from one man all the nations. And then he sets their times and their boundaries. And he's, he is present and active in the world. And he's created man for relationship with him. You see that? He says, I've created him that he might seek me and find me. 
and not like God is hard to find. He says he's actually not that far away. In fact, Scripture says if you seek him, you will find him. So Paul says he's the creator and he's a personal God and then he's going to quote from their own poets, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, there's a creator. There's one God. He's creator. That God created you for relationship with him, not an impersonal God, a very personal God, present and active in the world. And he is the judge. He has authority to judge. He says, even your own poets would say that God is the giver of life and that we are his offspring. So I'm quoting you. And I agree, we are the children of God. We are made in the image of God. So then how can we say that we, God's creation, have created God? See how he says that? He said, how can you possibly say that in our imagination and in the work of our hands, out of stone or silver or gold, we have fashioned God's? How is that possible? It doesn't even make sense from your worldview. And then he says, the time of ignorance is over. This is the part that may be offensive. I'll tell you about this God. Now here's the truth. You've lived in ignorance of this God, this unknown God, but that's over now. You know about him, and he is not only creator and not only personal, but he is judge. And he has set a time for judgment, and he has shown his authority to do that by raising Jesus from the dead. That's how we know that he is judge. So the time now is to repent before your creator, because he has made a way through the person of Jesus Christ for you to be right before the judge. I don't know if I would have thought to say all of that. I don't know if I would have thought to use their own words and their own worldview to show them God. But that's what Paul does. In verse 32, the end of our passage this morning, says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what is the response that Paul gets? He doesn't get a judgment for or against. They don't say, you can't teach that. But they also don't say, yeah, that's fine, go ahead. Some of them openly mock him. That's ridiculous. The resurrection of the dead is ridiculous, even more ridiculous than us fashioning our own gods out of stone or silver or gold. Some of them say, we need to hear more about this. We're not ready to give judgment. But the weight is probably against Paul here. And he knows that. We know that because he doesn't spend a lot of time here. We don't spend a lot of time talking about a church in Athens. <clears throat> but there are people who believe. One of the council members believes. 
It says the Areopagite, right, Dionysius, one of the members of the council believes what Paul is saying and he follows him. I believe that. And it's not just men and it's not just men of status. Luke names one of the women who also believes and says there are others like it. We say it all the time. The gospel is for everybody. It is for all who will believe. And Luke points out two of them here. Paul shares the gospel boldly, but he shares the gospel carefully. And he shares it in their context. And even though some of them laugh at him, there are some who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because of his willingness to share as effectively as possible in their context. And I think that's really important. Paul's not responsible for the outcome. He's responsible for how he presents, how he represents Jesus in this place in a way that they can understand, in a way that relates to the way that they see the world so that as many as possible might come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I said at the very beginning, here's, here's the whole message. God is creator, God is personal, and God is judge. That's the sermon that Paul gives in the middle of Athens. But the way that he does it is to make it as effective as possible. He contextualizes the message. What does that mean? It means he customizes it. He tailor makes the message for the listener so that it can be as effective as possible. He finds common ground with them and then he gives them the truth. He doesn't compromise the truth, but he tailor makes the message. So what does that mean for us? Because I would say most of us in this room would agree there's one God. We don't believe in Zeus or Poseidon, most of us. There's one God. Yes, believe it. He is the creator of everything and gives life to everything. Yes, I believe that. He's a personal God, active and present in the world, active and present in my life, seeking relationship with me. Yes, I believe that. That's what the Bible says. I also believe that God is judge and that he absolves me of my guilt before him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes. If you can say yes to all of those things, then what do you take from this? Here's what I would take from this as a follower of Jesus. Maybe the most impressive thing in this whole sermon to me, in this whole circumstance, in this passage, is the very beginning. When Paul is sitting in the city of Athens waiting for his friends without an agenda, and he looks around him and he sees people worshiping gods that do not exist. And his heart hurts for them. His heart breaks for those who are lost who are worshiping a false god or not worshiping any god at all, who are depending on themselves or their own efforts or their own reason or their own logic or nothing at all or Zeus or Poseidon or whoever, Athena, to make themselves right somehow with God. And it breaks his heart. So the first question I would ask for those of you who are followers of Jesus, does your heart break for those that don't know him? Or are you just content to have him to yourself? And I'm not pointing a finger at you by saying that. I'm pointing a finger at us and myself. Does our heart break for the lost? Because I would dare to say that there are people in your sphere of influence, there are people that you know, friends and family and people you work with and people around Sonora High School that think exactly the way the people of Athens thought. Do you know anyone in your sphere of influence that thinks that the purpose of life is comfort to maintain a life that gives you as m the greatest amount of comfort and the least anxiety possible. How we might, we might summarize that as the American dream. 
That's what we all aspire to in this country, a life of comfort and a life of ease and free from anxiety. Everyone around us subscribes to that. Do you know anyone in your life that would say, I want my, my life to be governed by reason and logic and what I can do on my own and that's enough for me and I don't need a God whether I have a name for him or not. If I believe in that God or not, I believe he's indifferent to me. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe a lot of people like that. I don't think our context is very different than the context that Paul finds himself in Athens. So how do we respond? Does our heart break for them? Are we able to share the message of the good news with them? Do we even know how to do that? Are you able to not only share that message, but then to customize that for their worldview so that you can make some, find some common ground and then show them where the breakdown is for them as Paul did? So here's what I would say. For those of us who know the Lord, if you know him, make him known. There is a God, whether people have a name for him or not, who is creator and is personal and is judge. And the time of ignorance is over, Paul says. So if you know him, make him known. The response is not up to you, but how you represent him in the world is up to you. If you don't know him, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not sure I can say yes to all those questions you asked earlier. If you don't know him, then seek him out. Paul says he is not as far away as you think he is. If you seek him, you will find him. And he cares and he is judge and he is willing to absolve you of all of your guilt before him if you will surrender your life to him. You, we have our um, connection cards this morning, and we're going to ask for them at the end of our time of worship this morning. So you have some time to respond. You can respond right now, or you can just think while we're singing, while others are singing, maybe you need to just take some time, and you need to pray, and you need to think, and you need to write some kind of response. But here's what I would ask of you this morning. I would just prompt some of these things in your own heart. And if you need us to pray or if you have some questions or if you want to talk to somebody about these things, here's what I would say. If you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're thinking, I don't care for people that, I don't care about people that don't know Jesus. I, I know I should and I want to, but it doesn't break my heart. But I know I should be there. Then would you tell us? Let us join you in praying that God would give you his heart for this city and for the people around you. Because as followers of Jesus, that should be our heart. Our heart should be for the lost. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I, I want to be bold in sharing the gospel, but I don't even know how to do that. I want to share the message of hope. I want to be able to contextualize it to the people around me, and I don't know how to do that. Cool. That's why we're here. We would love to help you do that. We would love to resource you and talk with you and help you. So would you put that on your card? Say, I want to be better at this. Would you help me learn how? Of course we will. <laughs> of course we will. I think some of you this morning, maybe you're thinking, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't think I'm representing him very well in this world. I think I'm more surrendered to my sin than I am surrendered to my Savior. And so I would just say, can we help? How can we help? Can we pray for you? Let us come alongside of you 
that's what we're about. That's what making disciples looks like. Let's do this together like Brian shared this morning. If you're in a life group, maybe you don't want to bring that to us. Maybe you want to bring that to your group. Just say, guys, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing well and I need help. But that's why we're here. So ask for help. Finally, I'm thinking of those in here that, that don't know Jesus, that have not surrendered to his plan, that are sitting here this morning thinking, I need hope. If this is a message of hope, I need hope. I don't know Jesus. I want to know more about that. Write it on your card. I've got a question. Would you talk with me? There's a place on there. Say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. That's what we want. We want to, our whole goal here is to proclaim the truth that God says to each and every one of us in here. I will absolve you of your guilt before me through the person and work of my son on the cross. Praise God for that. And we're going to do just that now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so glad to know you, to have access to this message of hope that you give us through your word. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that it gives. Thank you that you overlook our sinfulness and our brokenness and our rebellion against you. We praise you for that. Lord, would you allow us to just lift your name up and glorify you this morning? Would you be honored through our praise? Lord, I pray right now if there are those in this room that need to come back to you or those in this room who have never surrendered their life to you that you would prompt their heart right now during this time of worship to respond. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.